Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Kip Knight. He's the founder and the CEO of CMO Coaches, which coaches current and aspiring marketing leaders. He's also the operating partner at Tom Vest Ventures and a board member with NetBase Quid. He's held positions in brand marketing at places like Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo, KFC International, Taco Bell, eBay, and more. He's also the author of Learn to Leap, How Leaders Turn Risk into Opportunity, the co-author of Crafting Persuasion, a leader's handbook to influencing minds and changing behaviors. Kip, it's great to have you here on the show. Thanks, Vincent. Real pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome to have you here. Like something that's like probably pretty obvious for the audience listening to a podcast called Destination CMO, but like everybody really thinks of marketing as something slightly different. Like when you think about like the word marketing and how you define that and the difference that it makes to growing businesses versus businesses that have plateaued, like how do you think about that? Well, I had a group of marketers yesterday. We tackled the ambitious topic of the changing role of marketing and the changing role of the CMO. And it's tough, Vincent. Yeah, I like to compare the CMO role to the CFO role. And if you think of a CFO, it doesn't really matter how big or small the company is. It's pretty much the same job. And they pretty much had the same training to get there. Compare that to a CMO. It's kind of like name your own adventure. I've known CMOs that have gotten to that position through any number of routes. And the job itself, once you're in it, can range everything from incredibly tactical and hands-on and executional to almost purely strategic. So it's a tough job and it's one that I think deserves more than anything else. The CEO and the CMO agreeing right up front, this is we're all about and here are the key deliverables. Because to get to the punchline, the reason a lot of CMOs don't last very long is they don't get that alignment at the beginning and then marriage doesn't last very long. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a great point. Like there's a lot to actually what you just said in terms of like breaking that down, that the path to a CFO is oftentimes a little bit more linear than the path to a CMO where you could have somebody who grows, not uncommon for a lot of CMOs at one point to be within a sales organization or within an operations or a product or a product marketing team before kind of broadening out to own or be ahead of marketing. And then you're right to your point of like, I know some CMOs who it's consumer companies that are like very brand focused. And, you know, that work is really different than other CMOs at you know, B2B company where creating qualified sales opportunities for a B2B sales team is their sole kind of like laser line focus. Those two jobs are like completely different jobs because on one side you could have much more creative work. And then on the other side, it's actually a lot of like technology and like segmentation and personalization and like analytics that you're implementing to be able to kind of like tackle a very specific like slice of the customer journey. You're exactly right. And to make it even more complicated, odds are, Vincent, that your CEO is not going to have a marketing background. Only about one out of 10 CEOs have any kind of marketing background. 
vast majority are, wait for it, CFOs. So <laughs> if you have a CFO talking to a CEO, they probably speak the same language and understand the world the same way. And marketing, uh, unless you really work hard at making sure that you educate and listen very carefully to what your CEO is asking for, the possibilities for screwing up are infinite. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of like the historically and infamous low retention of CMOs. Many of us have seen study after study showing the average CMO tenure is like 4.2 years, which to me in startup world actually seems like forever. A lot of that is just misalignment in terms of perceptions of how that role and team should function. I guess I've been lucky throughout my career to potentially have asked the right questions or gained some of that alignment before signing those job offers. Like, what do you think a marketing candidate should be asking a CEO prior to signing a job offer to get a sense of building a better relationship at the beginning of that marriage? Well, first, let me just clarify. There's a lot of different data out there, but I think the closer number to the average length or median length of a CMO is closer to a year and a half as opposed to five years for a CFO and seven years for a CEO. So the average CEO is going to go through three CMOs on average before they're done with their tenure. To answer your question about what would you be smart to ask the CEO, I would let the CEO do 90% of the talking. And I would just ask clarifying question in terms of deliverables, interaction with the board, level of authority, roles and responsibility, budget, who gets veto power, all of those things, but let the CEO guide the conversation. And if you sense the CEO is not quite sure what they want, then you can frame the conversation up and just kind of walk them through a series of questions in terms of, at the end of the day, when you're doing my annual review, what's a good one look like and what can I do to get there? I know success and alignment for me in the past has been having an understanding of like how ambitiously the investors expecting the growth to occur in this product? How much time are the investors expecting to be able to get from testing and experimenting to product market fit and unit economics making sense for something? The other part that I love that you brought up and talked about up front is being transparent about budget up front. If you're handcuffed and you're expected to be able to execute on advanced strategies or get a certain amount of reach and growth without the right budget behind it, the best strategy in the world might never come to life. Yeah, unfortunately, I think marketers have a hard time saying no, and they just keep getting more and more and more stuff piled on the to-do list. And with everything that comes on, the probability of success goes down. So one practical tip I would give folks is, I'm originally from Louisiana. One expression is you can't put 10 pounds of potatoes in a five-pound sack. So if they're continually coming on and adding more stuff on, it's like, Okay, great. Happy to do it. What are we going to take off the list? It's not going to get done because yeah. I'm not going to sign up to deliver all those things. If you've given me the same amount of resources and I don't get any more times, so what's mm -hmm. the trade-off going to be? Yeah. One other thing, Vincent, I want to mention, again, I want to make sure we get some practical tips for our marketing brethren out there. There was a survey done last year that indicated that the biggest complaint that both CEOs and CFOs had about CMOs is they speak the language of marketing not the language of business. And so one thing that I would strongly encourage all our marketer brethren to do is, first of all, be very comfortable talking about finance. Don't treat it as if, you know, an allergy or something. You want to become as knowledgeable about finance as your CFO. That's a high bar, but you really need to be that good. And then you need to take everything you're doing 
and everything marketing's doing and translate that into finance speak or the numbers. Because unless and until you do that, there's a real risk of somebody either zoning out or not understanding what you're doing and therefore thinking it's not really very valuable. And that's what leads to a lot of people heading to the exit door. Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And I think how you start that conversation with your CEO or your founder or your CFO matters a lot too, because where a lot of marketers fall into the trap when they're taking a look at something like budgets is that marketing is being treated as a cost center. And in a cost center, the lower, the less that you spend, the better. Now, if you as a marketer or as a growth leader or as a revenue leader have the ability to articulate your spend less as a cost center and more as an investment with a series of experiments and learnings that could drive a clear return, then at that point, it completely switches the perception of the function and less budget and cutting budget, even during tough economic times, might not be the right decision because the decision could be to invest in something long-term with a clear path, with a clear business case. And so most, many marketers are familiar with the customer acquisition cost CAC to LTV lifetime rate value ratio. And being able to speak that language often will help justify existing expenses, but also really show why you're prioritizing different campaigns the way that you are or you're focused on specific areas of the funnel the way that you are. I love your kind of practical advice there of being able to speak the language of who you're talking to. Well, I think marketers have to be educators. And I spent some time working in England. They've got a great expression, praise in public, coach in private. And so one thing I've tried to do when I'm in a marketing role is spend some quality one-on-one -on -one time working with my head of finance so that you don't get to the point, and Vincent, this is the craziness that happens. If CFO comes in and says, we're chopping your market budget in half, but the revenue target remains the same. And at that point, it's like physics. It's like, wait a minute, you don't understand <laughs> how marketing works. If you take money out, how do you expect to get the same result? But you're only going to achieve that goal if you've laid the groundwork of a common understanding and agreement as to the importance of those marketing investments, not cost centers, but investments, so that you don't end up taking the short end of the stick if times get tough. Yeah. We have been through, when I take a look at the past decade, a lot has changed with the internet and how marketing occurs. There have been channels that have gone in and out, direct mail out of favor for a while, making a comeback now. What do you think the most significant change to marketing will be over the next decade? Wow, that's a huge question. I'll give you a couple of thoughts. First, segmentation. I started on marketing research a long time ago. And... I would say that segmentation studies is the drug of choice for a lot of CMOs. One of the very first things they'll do is say, well, we need a segmentation study and there are millions and millions of dollars spent on those. And my beef has always been, okay, now what? How do we implement that? Because I haven't noticed too many customers coming in with a segment tattooed on their forehead. <laughs> so I think operationalizing segmentation through technology is a really interesting and exciting possibility. And it should be a win-win-win because if consumers can frankly be exposed to only those messages that are relevant to them and marketers can make sure they only spend the money against customers they really want to go after, what's there not to like? The other piece of this that every day is emerging, AI 
has been an overused term for at least the last decade. When I was at H&R Block, we were working with IBM and Watson, and, and that didn't work out so great in terms of Watson doing your taxes. But I think with things like chat GPT and the ability to that both excites me and scares me at the same time. If I was a copywriter, I'd maybe be more scared. But I would say that more than any other profession, if you think about marketing over the last 50 years, it has gone through more radical changes. And you, know, you might even make the prediction we're just getting warmed up. I mean, there are over 4,000 and climbing marketing apps and analytical tools out there right now, just trying to keep up on the latest and greatest of the tsunami of change that's going is what makes this job very exciting, but also very perilous and one that is not for the faint of heart. I mean, you got to really lean on this on a daily basis and try to figure out, okay, what does all this mean? And then pick the, the critical few things that you're going to focus on that's going to hopefully make a difference. Yeah, I think you're spot on a lot of those predictions and segmentation and personalization. As marketers over the past five years, we've almost been like a little too lucky that other companies with smart technology like Facebook and Google have been able to deliver that personalization and segmentation on our behalf without the need for much first-party data. Meaning right. you can put an advertisement out there and Facebook, you know, your targeting can literally be 1865 plus targeting everybody who speaks English in the US. And Facebook has been able to hone in on a consumer or a B2B buyer that is at least somewhat interested to be able to then go find cohorts of other people that are similar to them. And with Apple's push towards privacy, Google's announcement of moving away and kind of into a cookie-less world, much of that, if you want to continue running those same strategies, it'll be necessary for brands to invest in first-party data. And really, and I think this is trend number two for marketers that will be successful in the next decade, know your customer. You can't rely on other companies knowing that person better than you do. And those days are quickly fading. Yeah. And one other thought, and I've tried to do this my whole career, and you can be a heck of a lot more sophisticated now than you could when I started. You should always have a collection of tests that are going on. And I'm not talking about simple A-B testing on you know your digital marketing. I'm talking about product testing and media and target audience and everything, because guess what? About 70% of the tests that I've ever run as a marketing leader have failed. But the good news is I didn't go waste money on those 70%. I was able to double down and spend my money on the 30% that did. So always keep your pipeline full and make sure that as you're developing your testing, you bring people with you in terms of the CFO and the CEO, and, and you agree to you know, the objectives and the data. And the way the game ought to be played is if we go out and prove our hypothesis, I can come back here and we can get funding to go make that happen. That is what has made the difference in my career between being confident in the investments I'm about to make and, and just saying, everybody go long, have no idea if this is going to work, but you know that's all we've got. So yeah. test, test, test. Walk me through, I want to talk a bit about like advice that you would give to a new marketer, but before moving there, like walk me through like your ideal interaction with a CFO, CEO to fund an experiment, prove out value through the experiment and scale that spend. Like what are the actions that you're thinking and how are you building that business case? Well, 
first as a bit of background, I would encourage, and this might seem like a unusual recommendation, but I would encourage all the marketers out there, if they could go work in another discipline for a while, you know, become a general manager, work in finance, be in sales, like you mentioned, but get out of your silo so that when you come to the party, you've got a much broader view of how the whole business ecosystem is going to work. Specifically to answer your question, what I would do is I would start off with the big objectives of, okay, so what is the overall deliverables we've got to get to? What, what's our key strategy in delivering that? What are the programs behind those? And then when we talk about the budget, could we take 90% of the available money and dedicate it toward those you know, objectives and strategies and then take that 10% and say, you know, in thinking ahead as to what we might need in the future, or frankly, if there's some possible alternative you know, realities we want to go explore, that's what we have available to go do it. And, and you basically go through the same process then. The big tip on that one is you do that at the very beginning of the budgeting process. You don't get to the very end and go, oh, yeah, I guess we got to do some testing. And then you're going to get into a, a dogfight in terms of nobody's going to give up what they've already got. So if you start out with the, the end in mind, like 90 percent is going to go for the main business and then 10 percent is reserved for the testing, then you should be fairly successful in getting that accomplished. Yeah, that's one of my big, I think, pieces when I talk to other marketers is like, don't be the person who's constantly going back and asking for more a dollar at a time. Right. You know, like really take a look at your longer term plan and get an agreement and an understanding for how that 10% bucket can be used and what the expectation yeah. of measurement and attribution is. Because sometimes on some experiments, they can be really closely measured. On others, if you get really stuck on being able to attribute to the extent that you would be able to attribute the 90%, you might end up in analysis paralysis where you can never even get the experiment off the ground. And not only that, it's really hard to be objective about testing, but you've got to force yourself and figure out some ways to do that in terms of bringing in perhaps somebody from the finance department or somebody from consumer research, or maybe even your own agency to go in there yeah. And don't put lipstick on a pig. I mean, if it ain't working, be brave enough to do, say it's not working, but at a minimum say, but this is what we learned from it. Because, and that goes both ways. Every test I've ever done, I've learned something. I've learned why it didn't work and what we can go back and try again. Or if it did work, how could we make it even better when we go national with it? So yeah. I can't overemphasize the value of testing in terms of increasing your probability of success and frankly, your credibility when you go in front of the board and say, here's why I want you to go spend $10 million on this next effort. Here's the data. Yep. And there was a nugget in there in terms of like, take, you just said, take the finance partner as a partner with you. Because really, if you're experimenting with your partner hand in hand, and they're doing the readout on how it's going to scale, that's even better than you reading the news afterwards of debriefing your experiment. I've got a, a good friend, Mike Linton, and he did something. I don't know how broad scale this is, Vincent, but he created a position. It's one of the first positions he creates in any of the marketing jobs he's had. He calls it a marketing CFO. And it is a finance person that is embedded inside the marketing team, works for the CMO and has a dotted line of the CFO. But that is your accountability partner. And Mike says, I wouldn't run a marketing team without that. I'm pretty close to that. Like I haven't called that role that role. And... I don't know in many instances in the past that that was like a full head, 
but for sure, like I always had a quarter of somebody's capacity or half of somebody's capacity, just because the last thing that you want is to run an experiment and at the end of the experiment, find out that you weren't aligned on the key metrics and that no matter what the outcome would have been, that you wouldn't have had a chance to be able to build that business case. And yeah. when the test is unsuccessful, like you said, I think it's a great time to quickly make that call, cut the spending there, do a readout on what you learned. When those experiments go are successful, even better to have your marketing CFO be the one telling that story side by side with you. You bet. When you think about like starting careers in marketing today, kind of a different world there because there's so many different areas of marketing from content marketing to social media marketing to, I mean, event marketing to all of the traditional marketing channels. What's your thoughts on like how somebody should start their career and kind of like what the first few steps are? Well, Vincent, my biggest concern is marketing is becoming a profession of super specialist. And one analogy I like to use is if you want to be an orchestra leader, you better go around and learn enough about all the other instruments so that when you're standing up in front and you've got the baton, you know what good looks like. So one bit of advice would be not to get too comfortable in any one discipline. I would encourage folks, work it out with your management. Is there some way, if you've got a larger marketing organization, that you could rotate through some of these various functions so you're familiar with them? Also, and this is even more ambitious, could you go spend some time working with your vendor, like the agency, for a period of time so you understand what that side of the table looks like? So I think the best advice I would give is be willing to get uncomfortable, be willing to change positions more frequently than you might normally do. And also don't be afraid to, to try different categories. I talked to a number of folks who they've spent most of their career in B2B or B2C and they, they're kicking themselves going, well, why didn't I have the guts to go learn B2B or B2C earlier on? Because now that I've done both, man, there are advantages of both those disciplines. And if you have the best of both of those, I think you're a much better marketer because of it. I agree with you on that. I mean, I have worked on B2B enterprise, multi-million dollar contracts to $10 at a time. And it's a consumer product that they can go to a website and, and just sign up for right. a free trial and a subscription and everything in between. And I think the danger that some people get into is there'll be two or three marketing jobs into their career and then feel like they can't do anything other than what they've already done because they don't have experience outside of there. And you know, I was talking to a friend, a friend who previously worked at, at WeWork, and he shared kind of this, this structure for like career pivots, which is you have your function, which is marketing, you have your industry, which could be SaaS, and then you have your network. And as you're making career pivots, you can change one of those three at a time, you could maybe change two of those three at a time. Kind of hard when you change like all three at the same time, where you might go New York network marketing role in the hospitality industry to transportation in LA and you're going into sales. But if you switch one of those at a time over the course of three jobs, you could fundamentally pivot your entire career without having to make a jump somewhere where you don't have some type of connection or introduction into that space. But I agree with you. Some of the best marketers that I've met, a lot of them have spent time outside of marketing and it makes them stronger leaders at being able to understand 
the perspectives of their peers as well as the ability to influence outside of their direct organization as well. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I've worked in seven different categories and 60 different countries. But the one thing that that's done for me is the ability to very quickly get into a new situation and not have any preconceived notions. I'd say that's probably one of the biggest challenges all marketers have. You get into a certain way of thinking about the world and it takes somebody to come along and go, well, why do you do that? Or why do you do it that way? Or ever consider doing something else? Right. And if you're going to make a real impactful change to a lot of categories, it's going to take that type of, you know, hey, what if, as opposed to second verse, same as the first. So don't be afraid to switch categories or positions or, or get in and out of marketing because all of those things I think are going to make you stronger and better. Yeah. And some of the innovation within a category or within an industry, you might have some industries where not much has changed over the course of 10 years but you could learn something outside of that industry that you then bring into it. And those types of changes sometimes are the differences in becoming market leaders. You take a look at like dispersion and kind of like what Uber and Lyft have done to traditional transportation. And then you see Airbnb applying that to a completely different industry. And some of those learnings only occur if you're looking outside of your kind of immediate world and an eco chamber that you're living in. Yeah, you're absolutely, and ironically, it became every new startup is the Uber of blank. <laughs> Same idea. But I'd say the principles of marketing are consistent across categories and countries. You've just got to be able to do that enough times to know that's true. So mm -hmm. that you go into a new category and they haven't applied a certain principle, you go, hey, how about blank? And all of a sudden, people are looking at you like you just discovered fire or the wheel. <laughs> well, it's not that hard. I mean, <laughs> so let's, let's try it. Yeah. So on the people looking like you just discovered fire, like what are the other big misperceptions that you think non-marketers sometimes have about marketers? And, you know, as a marketer, like what can I do about that? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is most people think marketers have all the fun and the job is easy. And uh, that's why a lot of folks, and we laugh about it, but it's got a little bit of sadness to it. Of all the C-level positions, nobody else thinks they can do that person's job except for the marketing person for some <laughs> reason. you know, and Nobody's going around saying, I wish I was the head of legal or the head of IT or the head of HR or, or any of that. But man, everybody wants to drive the marketing boat because it looks like fun. And so one of the learnings from that or the realizations is, again, you have to educate people as to what goes into marketing. And second, you need to work really hard to make sure you preserve the, the rights of the marketing organization, because Vincent, in too many situations I've seen, it's almost like being the Poland of Europe. You know, you have all the other functions coming in. If the business is not doing well, they carve off a piece of marketing and they take the people with them and get rid of the CMO. And then a couple of years later, they look back and they go, what have we done? And then they try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it's just a mess. Mm -hmm. So you have a sacred duty to protect the role of marketing in your company and not have everybody come in there thinking it's easy and thinking they could probably do it better. Not easy, but you got to fight the good fight. Yeah. And that's before this chat GPT world where right. some people think that chat GPT can replace the modern marketer. I saw a post on your LinkedIn about two weeks ago where you said, I'm still forming my own opinion on ChatGPT, but there's an excellent overview written by a gentleman from TomVest. What are your early kind of 
insights from seeing how this is developing? I'll be the first to admit I've used it already. And I consider myself a pretty good writer. I think that if I was a teacher of high school English or whatever, I might be a little bit concerned that the temptation would be great. But hey, all you kids out there, beware their tools of detecting when you've used it. But it's like any other technology. I think you've got to play with it. You've got to evaluate it. You've got to refine it. But I have to laugh. I love history. And if you go back and you look at any technology, including something like when the, I was heard this a while back, when the mirror came out, the current mirror that people used to hold up, there was a, a pushback against that because they thought it would encourage vanity and people would just spend all their time looking at themselves in the mirror. So it's not good or bad. It's whatever we choose to do with it. And what I'm going to do is experiment with it and use it, hopefully, to, to become an even better writer. But I hope people don't use it as a crutch to think that it's going to do all the work for them. That would be a, a big mistake. Yeah, I think in academia is really where you're seeing the first experiments kind of come to life with students trying to use this to write papers and professors essentially saying it cranks out a solid B plus paper right. and it doesn't give you the insights or the emotion or the outcome of a conclusion on a hypothesis that an A paper would give. And that's what I've seen it for, but even you gave the example of copywriters earlier, is what I've seen is it cranks out a solid B plus piece of copy. Now the question is, as a copywriter, are you taking that, using it to gain efficiency, and then bringing it up to that rockstar level piece of content that you would usually crank out and are you able to do that faster than you would in the past? But I think the opposite side of that, I think the danger is a lot of copywriters specialize today because they specialize in an area that they're comfortable writing for. And ChatGPT is really good at being confidently wrong, just oh, confidently it, stating it, inaccurate facts. If it doesn't know the answer, it will make it up and it will not put a little asterisk that says, I didn't you really should know. Double check this. Yeah. Right, double check this part. I'm not too sure about it. Now, I think about chat GPT as another tool that you've got in your arsenal, but, you know, and it's similar, I don't know if you've used Grammarly, but again, I, I've gotten to the point where I don't release anything until I've gone through Grammarly. And again, I'm a pretty good writer, but it always gives me something to make it a little bit better. Yep. So I think with all of these tools, I think that the human element's got to be the dominating factor and you've got to use your own judgment as to whether or not it's going to be worth it and it's going to make for a better end result. But I, I don't operate out of fear, operate out of <laughs> possibilities. I think that'd be the, the philosophy I would take for all of this stuff. I am trying to imagine a life without Grammarly and that life would have a lot more typos than my current life for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> One last question for you. You've had a few book projects come out. Like, what are you working on this year? What can everybody expect to, to see upcoming from you? Well, I've been talking to my co-author, Bob Pearson. That'll be a good way to get some reaction to this. We, our first book was Crafting Persuasion, and that's been you know very popular. A number of organizations have used it. Well, what Bob and I are thinking about doing is writing a follow-up book that would almost be like a companion book. Wouldn't be nearly as big. But just to talk about misinformation and what do you do about it in a practical sense? You know, we we're just talking about chat GPT. If you think misinformation is bad now, it could be uh, just the beginning of a tsunami of uh, misinformation out there. So 
I'd love to have your listeners give us some feedback in terms of, hey, if you guys can come up with some practical ways of how do you combat misinformation? And if you're trying to advocate a case and the people that are pushing back against you are, are doing it through misinformation or, or just flat out lies, what do you do next? That could be a really fascinating project and we're just getting started on it. So you know, I, more to come. We'll see. That would for sure be a fascinating topic because the, the pace and the volume that misinformation could be created essentially accelerates. And, you know, I think you're right. I think that there will be a continued arms race on this AI technology where there will be folks who will be used leveraging GPT. There will be companies trying to detect GPT that'll be applied to moderation. And, you know, we still have this battle on the internet for what are companies legally responsible for in the content that goes out and, you know, at what point does harm turn into illegal activity? And where is that line when you have this gray area where misinformation sometimes is not clearly categorized as dangerous? And, you know, there's been have been clear examples of just that playing out misinformation causing real physical harm. And if you believe in brands, and I do, and if brands equal trust, then this is not a nice to do. This is a got to do. How do you protect the integrity and credibility of your brand and make sure that people can trust your brand and you, you know, to tell them the, the truth. So uh, onward and upward, Vincent, we got a big job ahead of us here. Onward and upward for sure. Kip, where can people connect with you, follow along your journey and learn more? Well, LinkedIn's my, my favorite platform. I'd encourage everybody to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd also welcome any emails at kipknight at cmocoaches.com. If you are a CMO or an aspiring CMO, we've got a terrific network of coaches that, and we're the only network that I'm aware of that is comprised of former CMOs coaching current CMOs. So that's our niche. And we can help you both develop professionally as well as be a really confidential sounding board for all your marketing challenges. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kip, for joining us. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famfan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.